since I was last here, uh, last winter, in fact, on a Monday night, uh, I've had a few adventures. I'm sure you have too. So I wanted to share just a little bit about some of my adventures and weave them together with some of the teachings that support practice in our lives. My big adventure in this last year happened during the summer when I was privileged to uh, have the conditions available for me to be able to take a sabbatical and a full-time teacher. And so what I ended up doing was spending 100 days uh, living and studying and meditating and pilgrimaging in India. And it wasn't my first trip there, um, but it was great to be back. And so I spent that time and there were many adventures there. But I wanted to tell you a little bit about the end of the journey. And um, you know, weave it in with some of the wider, amazing things that are happening on this planet, basically. Because part of the reason that I go and live and practice places like India is I want to make sure that I'm not too stuck in my box. You know, my box of the sense of who I am, the cultural conditioning, what's familiar, what's comfortable. Uh, and so for me, going to India dissolves all those boundaries. So not exactly a comfortable experience for me, but amazing experience. And so at the end of this journey, which was early fall, uh, I was living alone for a short period of time in the capital city of New Delhi. And just as other times when I had been there, um, it's a mega city. It is filled with millions and millions of people and it's chaotic and complex and the sights and the sounds are very, very vivid as are the smells and the garbage and the beauty there. Um, so that's where I was at the end of my trip and that's where I flew out. But what I didn't know when I arrived in Delhi to spend some time there by myself before I left was I had happened to arrive on the eve of some very important occasions. And so I wanted to share those with you. I was very aware because I'd been traveling around the country for several months that there was a feeling of general excitement in the air. Uh, you may be aware that in May of last year, a new prime minister was elected, um, Prime Minister Moody. And he's a, a very different type of leader than some of the previous prime ministers. Uh, he's from a lower caste than some of the previous prime ministers, and, and uh, caste is how things are held still in India. Uh, he likes to tell stories about how he started. His first career was owning a tea shop. And he graduated that from that to different levels of politics and eventually was just elected the prime minister. And while there are issues with Prime Minister Moody, as there are issues with our own president or any world leader, uh, as I moved around the country, there was just this general air of excitement. Change was in the air. And so what happened the week before um, I left India was that Prime Minister Moody, maybe you remember, came to this country, came to the East Coast, and he made the visit to meet for the first time with President Obama and also to meet with the Indian different Indian communities in this country, uh, which hadn't been done before, is my understanding, or at least not in a while. 
and also with many, many CEOs of businesses, big businesses in this country. When he made that trip, he was in the middle of a period of fasting as part of his Hindu tradition. And so if you heard anything, you probably heard the story about how there was this big dinner at the White House for him. And you remember? And there was many course meals. I mean, they, they said in the news what the meal was. It sounded incredible. And Prime Minister Moody drank a glass of water. That was his dinner at the White House dinner. So I did hear that, that many of the American government officials were quite impressed and even astounded by his level of renunciation. You know, this is not something they were familiar with in terms of world leaders. So Prime Minister Moody is very well known. He's been traveling around the world kind of this last six months, eight months, meeting with different world, world leaders. And he's really well known for giving personalized gifts. And so the gift that he gave to President Obama was um, special recordings that had been taken from 1958 when Dr. Martin Luther King went to India on pilgrimage in the footsteps of Gandhi, who was one of Dr. King's heroes. And so there were some special recordings made, and um, Prime Minister Moody gave them to President Obama, who apparently was very pleased. So today we're celebrating the uh, birthday and honoring the life of Dr. King. So I wanted to share a little bit about these recordings from the King Papers Project. On March 9th, on his last full day in India, Dr. King delivered a farewell address to reporters and then recorded similar remarks for broadcast on All India Radio. Thanking those who had made his short stay both pleasant and instructive, he remarked that he and his traveling companions would not be rash enough to presume that we know India. Nonetheless, King suggested that the spirit of Gandhi is much stronger today than some people believe. He then offered his most controversial public pronouncement of the India tour by repeating another Indian uh, nonviolent activist suggestion that India disarm unilaterally. That's a bold statement for anybody to make, uh, especially a visitor in a different country. So the quote was this, it may be that just as India had to take the lead and show the world that national independence could be achieved nonviolently, so India may have to take the lead and call for universal disarmament. So very bold, very courageous, as we know from so much of his other um, speeches and, and his life. So that was part of the gift that President Obama got. Now, Prime Minister Moody returned to India just in time to honor the birthday of Gandhi which is October 2nd. And that was the day that at the end of that day, I was flying out of India. And so I woke up on October 2nd and everything was a lot quieter. You know, and there were people in the streets and they were talking and there were different parades and things that, you know, it was a national holiday to honor Gandhi, to honor the nonviolence movement. But what I didn't know until the day was fully launched and uh, you know, the sun had gotten much hotter. It was almost 100 degrees. The humidity was very high. It was autumn just after monsoon in the heartland of India. And so I was out on the streets, 
and people started talking about the project to clean India. I perked up my ears because one of the things that had um, touched me again, as it has so often when I've lived in India, is that um, the trash collection system there is at the level that the trash collection system was in this country in, say, maybe the 1940s. That's not as organized as it could be. And we're talking about 1,250,000,000 people and their garbage. You know, so you do the math and visualize what that might look like. And so people were starting to talk about clean India, clean India. And it kept getting hotter and hotter, and I was curious. So I went back to my room, which was the only air-conditioned room that I had the entire trip. Kind of gave myself a treat at the end. And it also had a television, which is the only time I had a television the entire 100 days. It was Delhi, you know, it was high-tech. I had a TV. Um, and so I turned it on and discovered that this project was launching on Gandhi's birthday, uh, led by Prime Minister Modi, um, called Clean India Campaign. And the program includes government officials committing Government officials. Do you know how many government officials there are in India? A lot. Government officials committing to offer two hours a week to clean up their local area. Um, college students coming together to organize and direct projects of cleaning up different areas in the cities that they lived. Um, cleaning up public spaces, especially railroad stations, public restrooms. And then they were using social media to post photos of the service that was offered. And so people would be sweeping, and then they pull out their phone, take a photo, put it on the website, and everyone could delight in it and be inspired to do their part. Really brilliant. The long-term plan with this project is actually by 2019 to install toilets in every household. Now, currently in India, 50% of the households do not have toilets. And not only is this an incredible health hazard, um, but it's, it's also threatening the safety, particularly of women who have to go out in the middle of the night to take care of their business, you know, to take care of themselves. Um, so there's a lot of momentum behind this across the country. I was incredibly inspired by this. And I wanted to share it with you because if a group of people that large can do it and organize themselves and do it and inspire each other and do it, so can we. And we are. And I started to think about how this meditation practice that we're doing, these practices of mindfulness and loving kindness, it's attending to the internal and the external. If we clean up our minds and beautify our hearts, then we have the capacity to go out in the world and say, what is needed and what can I do? And then we can do it because we have the energy available to do it. The energy isn't being dispersed in extra reactivity and stress. You know, it's quite amazing how this practice works. And so the, the Dharma themes that I want to pull out of this story are three. And the first is cleaning up our minds, cleaning up our hearts. 
The second is a question that I started reflecting on after I thought about the gift that Moody gave uh, President Obama. And I thought, what is the perfect gift which wants to be given? And how does that tie into our spiritual life? And then the third theme is interconnectedness over time and space. Because even though I was the one that physically went to India this time, how many of you have been to India? Curious. So even me bringing this up, you're already being flooded with your own memories of direct experience. And here's the other thing. The first time I went to India was only a few years ago, 2010. And my teachers would sit up at the front and they'd talk about India or Thailand or wherever they talk about. And I think, wow, I don't know if I could ever go there. I don't know if I could handle it. It sounds really exciting. It sounds like they learned a lot. It sounds like they had a hard time. Maybe someday I'll be able to go. It happened that I could. We're sharing stories. So much of the spiritual path is actually sharing stories. We meditate to decrease the storytelling that isn't helping us. And then we bring in the archetypal stories to inspire us to keep going. So we'll start with two ways to clean up the mind. And the first one probably won't be a surprise to many of us. Uh, It's this mindfulness. So I want to share with you a definition of mindfulness. It's very simple, one of my favorites, and and from one of the leaders of mindfulness in this country, uh, Dr. John Kabat-Zinn. Mindfulness means paying attention in a particular way on purpose, in the present moment, and non-judgmentally. So we've got paying attention, on purpose, present moment, no judgment. Then I looked up the ABCs of mindfulness, which was newer to me, and it's from um, Juliet Adams, who's the founder of mindfulnet.org. A is for awareness, becoming more aware of what you are thinking and doing, what's going on in your mind and body. B is for just being with your experience, avoiding the tendency to respond on autopilot and feed problems by creating your own story. C is for seeing things and responding more wisely by creating a gap between the experience and our reaction to the experience, we can make wiser choices. Those are incredible invitations into being a human being, living a life. Uh, And it's what we're doing here, right? I'm sure some of us are very tired, and some of us have had an incredibly long day. Uh, Others of us today have not, but another day will have. And yet we come, and we keep coming back over and over again, and we stay. The second way we can clean up our mind, uh, possibility, I like to think about it as beautifying the mind and, and a way of transforming these unskillful habit patterns. And it really is the loving kindness, practice, and spirit itself. I'm so inspired that 90 people for a week chose to live in the retreat center up the hill, and they spent an entire week doing something like this. They would come into the meditation hall and they would sit down and they'd say to themselves and to others something like, may I be protected and safe. 
May I be happy. May I be healthy and strong. May I live with ease. And everyone made their own kind of phrases that spoke to them. And then we'd ring the bell and they'd get up and they'd walk back and forth quietly, each footstep a blessing on the earth. And they'd say to themselves, may you be protected and safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy and strong. May you be at ease. And then another bell would ring and they'd go down and have some delicious food in the dining hall. May we be protected and safe. May we be happy. May we be healthy and strong. And may we live with ease. And that was what they did day in and day out. And boy, did they work hard. You know, can you imagine just doing that for a week? How many of you have done that for a week? I bet some of you have. Yeah. Yeah. And so you know that it is totally inspiring. It is very rigorous. It can get quite discouraging. Uh, We have to make space for everything that interferes with this spirit of friendliness and actually create the space of friendliness with it. The tiredness, the aversion, the fear, the anxiety, the grief. And people up there were working with that, you know, with incredible kindness and friendliness. Really, really inspired me as it always does teaching that retreat. There's a wonderful line that speaks to this by one of our founding teachers here, Sylvia Borstein. She puts it like this, how we beautify the moment. She walks around on the planet and says this, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend. May I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend. May I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend. She walks around on the planet like that. So could we. You have your own line. I walk around a lot on the planet and say things to myself like, may I trust in the unfolding? May I trust in the unfolding? That really starts to relax the garbage of the mind that starts to contract and over control and get a little bit too attached to my agenda and I'm right. May I trust in the unfolding? It allows me to meet this moment fully and meet it as a friend. You might have your own. So this metta, this loving-kindness, I laughingly call it replacement thought therapy for the mind. Because when the mind is filled with its, what we might metaphorically call garbage, the endless amounts of rumination and storytelling and planning and rehearsing and rehashing ad nauseum, it can just feel really cluttered. And we could actually make the choice to think differently. So this is a quote from Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's one of the foremost scholars of our time. He says, ill will meets its proper remedy in the meditation on loving kindness, which banishes all traces of hatred and anger through the methodical radiation of the altruistic wish that all beings be well and happy. The end. I think. Sounds nice, right? Sounds a little bit high end. Then I found another scholar, Nyanaponika Tara, who said, but unless the mind is well-trained, those moments when the vehement wrath flares up, it will rarely be possible to, redu- to replace that wrath immediately by thoughts of loving-kindness. It's not easy. We have to train. So here's what the Buddha said about it. The Buddha said, when we look the whole world over, the whole world, 
seven billion. And that's just the human realm. What about the animal realm? The whole world over. There's no one more worthy of our love and our kindness than ourselves. Likewise, we might hold every other as dear. Whomever genuinely loves themselves would never intentionally harm another. That's a powerful statement. When we genuinely love ourselves, we cannot intentionally harm another. And that's why there's no one more worthy. The Buddha didn't live in California now. This is not California alternative spirituality. Although that's great too. I grew up in it. (laughs) There's a wonderful image I love about um, metta practice. It's said that as the sun sheds its rays on all without distinction, so too the mind and heart of loving kindness shines its rays on all without distinction. You know, we can think about it, right? The sun doesn't shine and say, I'm going to shine on everybody but you or you or you. Although sometimes doesn't it feel that way? It's like everything's going well for everybody but me. But in fact, the mature heart of loving kindness... It's it's everyone. Everyone friendly. It's not condoning unskillful actions or the harm we've received. It's just saying, I'm intending to be friendly, even though, even though. So here's a quote by Martha um, Postulate, and she's a professor of of spirituality. And she says this, uh, she lives in Minneapolis. Do not try to save the whole world or do anything grandiose. Instead, create a clearing in the dense forest of your life and wait there patiently until the song that is your life falls into your own cupped hands and you recognize and greet it. Only then will you know how to give yourself to the world so worthy of rescue. So we breathe in and we breathe out and we fill the internal reservoir of ourselves and then it spills over into a world that really needs it. Whatever we're offering, the world is grateful. We need all the expressions of what we're offering. None of us can save the world by ourselves. So then we'll move into this question I've been reflecting on. Maybe you started reflecting on it when I said it. About gifts. What is the perfect gift which wants to be given? And I started thinking about how after we start to clean up our own minds, we really can be available for the impulses to give. When our own minds are full and our bodies are tied up in knots as a result, it's really hard to look at our loved ones or our communities or the planet and have, feel like we have anything to offer. Right? First, we have to clear out a little bit, fill that reservoir. So I'm passionate about the practice of dana, dana in the Pali, the old language, or generosity. And I love it that the Buddha talked about the three happinesses of following the impulse to give. It's not about what, it's about the process of giving. He said that when it occurs to us to give something, we feel happy. When we give something, we feel happy. After we've given something and reflect on it, we feel happy. And this completely came out in the metta retreat that I just finished teaching 
So we had a closing ceremony this morning, and part of that ceremony was um, having people share their experience from the retreat, you know, letting the whole community have a window in to a few people's experience. So this one woman raised her hand in the back of the hall, and she said, well, she said, I have to tell the M&M story. And the entire area around her burst into laughter. And so I knew I'd missed something during the retreat. So it turns out that she came into the hall one day, the meditation hall, and somebody had left not a package of M&Ms, but like a few M&Ms on her cushion. And she was so excited because, you know, there's not a lot going on on these retreats. And you can't go to the store and get a cappuccino. And, you know, so it's like, great. And she thought to herself, so then she started storytelling. She thought to herself, oh, maybe somebody thought it was my birthday or... Oh, maybe everybody got M&M's. Maybe we're going to do an eating meditation and we'll carefully, slowly taste the M&M. And then she looked around and noticed that other cushions around her had M&M's. But then she looked even further and noticed that cushions around them did not have M&M's. So then she thought that maybe they were part of a sociological experiment and we had a camera (laughs) on the wall observing how people would respond to these M&M's. What was actually revealed through several people sharing is that somebody had felt just, they had brought M&Ms to the retreat just in case. And, you know, the just in case M&Ms. And they felt inspired to give a gift. And um, the joy of that gift and the joy of receiving that gift. And then we realized that people have been gifting other people the whole retreat with cough lozenges because there's so much illness on this retreat. And we just started talking about all the different gifts that had been given, small gifts. And the hall got happier and happier. And then we did a reflection about, so what happens if we take this joy and move it out into the world and look for impulses to give? It was one of my main um, on-the-ground practices while I was living and studying and traveling to India, being on the lookout for impulses to give. Little things like somebody at a guest house I was staying at, coming out of their bedroom in the morning. How did you sleep, friend? I slept mm, not so good, I was cold. And I'd suddenly realized that I had an extra wrap. Would you like an extra wrap? It's colder than we anticipated. Just offering it, you know? Uh, Somebody gets sick, and I realize I know where the local clinic is. And I've been sick in India, and I know what that's like, and they're traveling alone. Do you want me to go with you? These little impulses matter because if we all respond to them, then we have a world of generosity. It's the gift that keeps on giving. I wanted to offer an ordinary example from daily life, you know, especially in the times that we live in in this country. This is a story from Canada, uh, and it's something that started in November uh, in Prince Albert, uh, city in Canada. Police in Prince Albert in November began handing out positive tickets to young people doing good deeds. Children caught picking up trash or using a a crosswalk are liable to be served with a coupon for a free hamburger. So I don't know what the hamburger is about, but, you know... In our own country... Um, These are really, really complex times in this area. And there's still the possibility 
there's still the possibility of being on the lookout for kindness from everybody. And that the very systems um, that might feel broken in some ways can also start to grow. Now may that happen for every system in our country that needs nurturing, that needs growth. May it grow. May it mature. So when I was thinking about, one of the things I was thinking about is how would we know the perfect gift if we saw it? And I realized the importance of the practice of deep listening. Deep listening internally and externally. Um, Because again, uh, living in the areas that I lived in in India, and of course, I want to acknowledge not all India is poor. There's a whole huge range of wealth disparity there, just as there is here. Uh, But the places that I was living were were not well off. And so it took incredibly deep listening to be skillful about what was appropriate to give and when. I wanted to share a quote from His Holiness the Karmapa, uh, who's somebody that I studied with on a previous India journey. Uh, that has really addressed for me this issue. He says, We may want to help, but we lack the patience to understand the situation fully and come in with our own ideas or personal agendas. When helping others, positive attitude and intention must be combined with practicing the paramis, which are the perfections of mind and heart, and favorable conditions are needed. And it's that and that I'm really interested in because we can bring our full hearts and everything to bear to giving and the favorable conditions aren't there and it isn't received or actually it was an inappropriate gift. What's gonna, our response going to be? It's going to be, oh, I did it wrong or how could you not accept this or da 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 reactivity. Or, oh, the conditions weren't there. May they be there soon. Moving on. So sometimes we need patience, right? A lot of patience. There's a wonderful quote from the Buddha about patience. And he gave this teaching to 1,200 awakened beings. So 1,200 meditators that were really, really awake on a full moon in February. So we're almost there, full moon in February. And the first line of the teaching is this. Patient endurance is the highest practice for overcoming that which obstructs the heart. Isn't that nice? Say it again. Patient endurance is the highest practice for overcoming that which obstructs the heart. Sometimes we just got to wait it out. But we don't have to necessarily dig in and muscle through and wait it out, although sometimes that's part of the process. Uh, Sometimes it's about acknowledging there's something obstructing my heart. Can I give it space and time to unfold? May I trust in the unfolding? Again. So then what about receiving the gift? I'm going to bring in some words from James Barras, another one of our founding teachers, from his book Awakening Joy. And this is... This is from some of the participants in his Awakening Joy course talking about what gratitude feels like in the body. So when they were able to receive the gift of their lives, what it felt like in their body. I breathe more deeply. 
I feel a glow in my chest, a tingling in my fingers, and a half smile appears on my face. It feels like a blanket of goodness descending upon me. It brings me energy and peace at the same time. I like myself and my muscles relax. And then the last one. I feel like my body is resting on the perfect pillow created to hold all of me. So, um, gratitude is a wonderful practice. It's a wonderful practice of giving the gift and receiving the gift. Something amazing happened last year in my own community at Mountain Stream Meditation. Uh, I have a group of practitioners uh, there that I work with long term, and, and we have a program called Committed Students Program. And so last year, one of our topics was the Brahma Viharas. And the Brahma Viharas are loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. So I spent about a half a year studying them and practicing them. And a surprising thing happened because those are great qualities. Those are the kind of qualities that we want to have in our lives. And in fact, those are the kind of qualities that we do have in our minds and our lives when we're not startled or angry or confused. They're available when we're not startled or angry or confused. So the amazing thing about this particular section of study was that gratitude was what lit up with them. Now, mountain stream meditation community, we're rural. So we're really widely dispersed. And there were participants in this program coming to Nevada City from as far away as Carson City, Nevada, Reno, Nevada, Truckee, Chico, Davis, Placerville, Sacramento, and closer in. So they were really, really committed to their journey as a community and their practice. They lit up with the gratitude and they started making gratitude lists and sending each other a text every day with something they were grateful for. And then it caught on and they brought it to their home communities and people in those communities started practicing gratitude and getting buddies and making lists and doing journaling every day. And it just took off like wildfire through the mountain stream community. It was really fun. That could happen here. Even if three of us left here tonight and said, hey, I wanna take on a gratitude practice as a gift for those around me and let it spread wider and wider. And you texted somebody and said, hey, I wanna share with you something I'm grateful for once a week for a while. And put something on your fridge and the people you live with can add something it would take off so large, we would have no idea. That's how these practices work. So it's so wonderful. So why wait? You know, here we are, a bunch of folks. Let's take a moment. It's not a test question. The little things can sometimes be more important than the big things. Let's take a moment. What are you grateful for right now? A few of us call it out so everybody can hear. Now fill the room with it. Call it out loud so people can hear. Beautiful day. Beautiful day. Life, friendship. Nature. Chocolate. Chocolate. Not toothache. Not toothache. That's from Thich Nhat Hanh. <laughs> More. Family. Hope. Hope. Food. Health. The Dharma. Cats and a bunch of other things. 
And it starts to grow, right? It starts to grow. How many of you smiled a little bit when you heard some of these things? Let's see a show of hands. Maybe it's an internal smile. Yeah, yeah, an internal smile. Yeah, yeah. So fill in about no toothache. It's a great teaching. One of my, one of my kind of current favorites from uh, the great master Thich Nhat Hanh. And, and, you know, I really take this teaching to heart because um, Thich Nhat Hanh knows suffering. And so I can trust him when he says that one of his practices is simply noticing no toothache, the absence of a problem. Any of us that's had an actual toothache knows that when you have a toothache and then maybe you go to the dentist or you don't go to the dentist and it resolves and then there's some little twinge in your tooth, a little twinge that you would never, ever notice normally except you just had a toothache and you go, uh-oh, it's the uh-oh mind. We can get so fixated on being what I call on the lookout for trouble, on the lookout for the problem. And then there are times we can just relax and smile and say, hey, no toothache. I'll take it. I'll take it. Thanks for bringing that in. <laughs> so I'll share with you a favorite quote from Pema Chodron. about gratitude. She says, constantly apply cheerfulness if for no other reason than because you are on this spiritual path. Have a sense of gratitude to everything, even difficult emotions, because of their potential to wake you up. That's a really different attitude of mind. The fear comes, the anger comes, the resentment comes, the numbness comes. Thank you. Thank you for showing me what's true. Thank you for showing me what's so. Thank you, I have the capacity to actually feel this right now. And then I think about all the different people on the planet who do not have the conditions to be able to feel what's so for various different reasons. It's a privilege to be able to feel what's so. So then a little bit about interconnectedness. Um, Because... For me, uh, when I travel, and I would guess that for you also sometimes, whether it's an inner journey like a retreat or an outer journey like India, my heart is touched. It opens in a different kind of way than when I'm in my kind of regular life. And I still think about certain people that I met during my journey. The image of them remains in my mind. I wonder how they are. I wish them well. And it's true that sometimes, even if I'm just moving around teaching uh, here in the U.S., that that can also happen. I think it's the way that the heart just feels wider. And it can happen, I'm also thinking it can happen when we have a conflict with somebody, or there's some kind of rub, and then it resolves, and you just feel yourself relaxed, it's more open. It's interconnectedness. A little more about that, and this metta, this loving-kindness. Because in the end, the invitation for this loving-kindness is actually all beings, not one left out. But the way that we train to open that wide is to start close to home and to start where it's easier and simpler. When we teach the metta retreats here at Spirit Rock, we start with ourselves or someone who's easy. 
And then we expand to people who've supported us in our lives and who are dear to us. And then we expand to those that are familiar strangers that we don't know so well, but, you know, we know who they are. And then we take a whole day. People come to the Metta Retreat just for this day. We spend a whole day working with somebody that's difficult for us to be friendly with. That's always an interesting day. And then we expand it out into all beings without exception. But inevitably, every year, and it might be on your mind as well, too, tonight, people ask me things like, oh, beings without exception, how could I even remember them all, much less wish them all well? And I had that question, too, um, when I was starting my training. And the wonderful thing is, is that when we're extending friendliness, when we're moving around on this planet, when we're driving, when we're walking into stores, when we're in our workplace, at home, all these places that we go, when we're extending that field of friendliness, it isn't so much about who, it's about what. And when the field of friendliness is really there, it's incredibly contagious. So it can start touching people that we wouldn't normally feel friendly towards. And they don't even know. It's completely what I call stealth dharma. Nobody knows we're doing it. Um, But... It does have impact, and I think that the way that it has impact is that it's lowering the possibility of reactivity in us when everybody on the planet is playing their role perfectly due to causes and conditions. And so this one is annoyed, and this one is annoying, and this one, I just don't grok them, and this one I adore, and everybody's just manifesting exactly as they are and they're rubbing up against me and all my stuff and it all comes together and here we are. And there's this extension of friendliness as possible that lowers the reactivity so that the annoying one is less annoying and the beloved one we're less obsessed with and on and on and on. It's fantastic. So you might be wondering, well, how do I, how do, I do this in my life? Actually, you know, before I say anything, a lot of you didn't raise your hand as brand new to Spirit Rock, so that means maybe you've been here for a little while. Would a couple people be willing to be bold and share how they practice loving kindness just in their life, like a headline? And I'll repeat it back so everyone can hear. It's nice to have our community wisdom here. How do you practice loving kindness in your daily life? Please. That's wonderful. She's got a morning yoga practice, and as she does it, she sends out the loving kindness to the whole world. And what's particularly great about that is then that friendliness is fully embodied. So that's a great mix. Yeah, what else? Please. Waiting in traffic, at the grocery store, just waiting. I just, you know, may you be happy, may you be well, may you be at ease. Isn't that great? So... She practices sending people well wishes while she's waiting in traffic, in lines. I say that the invitation of meditation is we never have to wait again for the rest of our lives because we could always just take that moment to practice as you do. Yeah, yeah. Maybe one more. Anybody further back, please? Yeah. Just questioning whether I have any idea at all what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes. 
That's a great one. That's a great one. It's a, it's a whole practice like I'll turning it around and then he checks out, you know, reflects on, well, what would it be like to walk in this person's shoes? Yeah, it's a very, very supportive practice for interconnection. There was one more hand in the back, so we'll take this last one. Yeah. Amazing. Okay, so we have collective mind. She does the exact same thing. <laughs> so a few other things um, that I enjoy doing besides those, all of those I enjoy doing. Uh, one of them is driving in the car. Uh, being back here in the Bay Area, you know, where I live these days, there, there just isn't so much traffic. It's a rural area. But coming back here it just reminds me what it's like when we don't live in a rural area. And I trained myself a long, long time ago. When somebody's driving recklessly, when they cut me off, when they're just, you know, not aware that there's any other cars on the road except them, <laughs> I actually trained my mind to have a different first response than my original first response. You can imagine what that is, right? So I retrained the mind. I needed to clean up that part of the mind. And the first thing I think of now when I see that is literally, I hope you get there safely. And the way I started that training was just to imagine, you know, maybe there's a birth and they're in a hurry. Or maybe there's a death and they're in a hurry. And actually, to be totally honest, that practice I'm now realizing <laughs> um, first started, it's both funny and sad. The only moving violation that I've ever gotten for speeding was when I was 23 years old. And um, it was actually the end of my mother's life. It's the last week of her life. And um, the time had changed as a time change moment. Um, and I somehow had missed that. And I wanted to see her before I went to school. And I was running late. And, um, you know, I knew she wasn't going to be around much longer. So I was totally speeding. And I got pulled over. And I burst into tears. And I just wailed. And the police officer just wrote me a ticket and drove off. Um, but it made me realize, huh, maybe sometimes when people are driving recklessly, somebody's dying. There's a really good reason. And I know that often there isn't, but that's where that practice started with me. Again, it was like putting myself in other people's shoes after the fact. I hope they get there okay. On my way to India, and it was my first time traveling, traveling internationally um, by myself. And so I was dealing with a lot of airports and a lot of uh, security lines and, and all of this. And so in SFO Airport, I had just gotten there and, and I was excited and I was nervous and, you know, was everything going to go okay? It takes about 35 hours travel, uh, basically without much sleep to get where I was going. And so I got in line and I sort of realized that maybe my carry-on baggage was a little bit too heavy and there was no way I was leaving anything behind because what I was carrying was all I was going to have basically for 100 days. So I was worried about that. And then my attention was caught by uh, this group of people. They were obviously traveling to Germany, which was my first destination as a group. And there was this family and it appeared to me that the uh, mother was going to go to Germany and that the father and the teenage daughter were going to be staying behind. And they were there and they were talking and 
They were saying their goodbyes, and the teenage daughter was playing her role perfectly as a teenage daughter. So a little standoffish, kind of cool, um, but clearly going to miss her mom. And at one point, right before they were dispersing, she just reached out for her mom and grabbed her and gave her the hugest hug, and I almost burst into tears. Like, I just was so connected with this family that was dispersing because I had just dispersed from my own family. And the interconnection that can actually happen in public places when we're open to it. I've had that happen in hospitals. I'm taking care of somebody. And then somebody else comes down the hall and they're taking care of somebody. Or they have the IV. You know, it's not separate. We're all going through this together. May we all get there okay. May we all get there safely. So while I was watching TV in that hotel room in New Delhi and found out about this Clean India campaign, uh, I also discovered something else that I didn't know. It was just on the same news show. But it made me think about interconnection when I was reflecting on this talk. And it's the interconnection that we have through social media. Now, social media is um, tricky, and it can really, really encourage not interconnection as well. It can encourage isolation, but to also celebrate where it does support interconnection. And so there was this item right after the Clean Up India campaign about this group of musicians who are all blind. They live all over the world. They play all these different instruments, and they come together online to make music together. And they were incredible. And I was just marveling at how a country of 1 billion, 250 million people was doing this huge environmental campaign. And then there's this other group of musicians that are creating music for the world. Could have never happened before. Our interconnectedness. So I want to go back to the um, Clean India campaign and what happened next. Because what happened next was it was time for me to go to the airport. And the airport was about a half an hour away by taxi. And I went in the evening after the day was done. So the end of this national holiday honoring Gandhi. And I got in the taxi and we got on the roads and we're driving down the first main thoroughfare. And something was just different. And so I start to orient. What's different? Because I'm traveling alone. You know, you want to know what's feeling different. And then I got it immediately. What was different was there was an absence of something. And the absence was trash. Half an hour taxi ride through the heart of one of the largest cities on the planet. And there was no trash anywhere. I've never seen anything like it in a day. In one day. Now, I am reasonably sure that there is not zero trash there today. Because you know how it goes. Good intentions, and then we lose steam, and then we gain steam. It's exactly the same as our spiritual life. And there will be cycles, as with any project. But it made me reflect on how it's so easy to miss the absence of the garbage in our minds. We have a moment of calm we can actually think it's boring and miss how delightful it is to just be calm, for example. So the absence of. Um, this is from Venerable Buddha Akita, 
Venerable Buddha Rakita is the founder of Mahabodhi Society and its sister centers in India. He's a lifelong uh, monastic, scholar, and um, also activist. He says, the absence of desire to oppress or damage, to hurt or injure, to torment, to trouble or eliminate others. This is the absence when it meets the world. So before I was going to share this with you, I started to get curious. I wonder how the project's going now. And so I looked it up. And it turns out that the project is continuing. And of course, there are some issues and problems and, you know, people getting upset that they have to clean and this and that, um, inevitably. But uh, recently, Prime Minister Moody invited nine more large groups of uh, workers in India to join this. Uh, and the one that's the most famous are the uh, Dabawalas. And the Dabawalas are the people who provide the hot lunch boxes for the lunch of millions, in, uh, particularly in Mumbai, but in India as a whole. So I thought I would share a little bit from the Dabawalas. We are truly thrilled and honored. It's a big responsibility given to us, and we shall all go out and implement it. If any of us leaves this responsibility in between, India will never be a clean place. We request everyone to give 15 minutes of their time and clean their surroundings. We will try and do this every day. What if we all took 15 minutes? What if we all took 15 minutes every single day to clean up our minds and do some form of mindfulness or loving-kindness practice and to also give in some way that's totally appropriate to us? 15 minutes. It would make a difference. It would make a difference. Uh, So I'd like to close with a quote from Dr. King. He said, if you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, you have to keep moving forward. So that is what I have to offer uh, for your reflection this evening. And uh, I thank you deeply for the kindness of your attention. Uh, I know it's a late evening here on Monday nights. And we want to take a moment to uh, close as we do. This is actually one of my favorite parts of the evening. uh, Because there's so many of us. And uh, we can send out our good wishes with our intentions and we will. Uh, We can send them out with our voices, and we will. My root teacher actually says that when we chant the end of a time together, like we often do here, uh, if you chant really loud, they'll hear you two hills over. But the intention that moves from our minds and our hearts is so loud and so powerful that can actually fill the whole world. And so we can gather up our good wishes in our minds and hearts right now um, and send them out to the world with a simple chant 
and take tremendous delight that as we move out into the world of, world of words and action, we will be sharing this practice and they will not necessarily know. And it doesn't matter. So when I was a, a young practitioner and student here on Monday nights, uh, and Jack was here more often, he would often end the evening with this simple um, Sanskrit uh, root syllable, namo. Does he still do that? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Namo. So namo is the root syllable for namaste. And my favorite kind of interpretation of namaste is that the deepest part of me bows to the deepest part in you. So we will um, chant it together nine times. Harmony is welcome. If you feel like you can't carry a tune around here, that's harmony. You are welcome. (laughs) It's nice to know there's a place that you can sing whether you can carry a tune or not. Not a lot of places like that. So um, I like to put my hands at heart center and, and you are welcome to or not as you wish. Just moves me. So we'll take a deep breath in. Namo. singing in harmony. So travel safely until we meet again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.